0: The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off.
1: And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was
0: truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240. And the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Our guest on this episode of The Spear is Captain Jason Pomeroy. Captain Pomeroy,
1: thanks for coming to talk to us today. Appreciate you being here to tell your story about Operation Strong Eagle III. Um Can you give us a little bit of basic context about the deployment that this operation happened on, where you were, what your position was, that kind of thing, just for some background?
0: Sure, absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here and uh, share this story about uh, what we went through and some lessons learned So at the time of this mission, uh, I was a platoon leader with Charlie Company in 2nd Battalion, 327th Infantry Regiment, 101st, which is uh, 1st Brigade, 101st uh, Cougar Company. And our mission uh, was uh, a battalion plus size mission, uh, the operation name again, Strong Eagle 3. And the location of this uh, for our company specifically was in... uh, Saro Bay, Kale, uh, the you know, the Afghan word for uh, town. And uh, looking at this a little bit bigger, uh, that location is in RC East uh, along the northeastern Afghan Paki border uh, along the Kunar River Valley, south of the Pesh River Valley. And uh, where, this, where this mission actually took place, a lot of different units Maneuvered off of their normal AOs and maneuvered into this area as a bit battalion consolidated air insertion and uh, To to where I normally operated which was south of this AO um, We were probably another uh, 20 miles or so north of our of our normal AO where we were operating um, Again, like I said the task work or the mission we had a battalion worth of uh, infantry uh, unit guys going in uh, for this mission. We had, a, we had a bunch of enabling assets uh, coming in with us to include dogs, uh, bomb sniffing dogs, uh, radio intercept teams, and we also had MPs attached to us as well in case we took detainees on the operation uh, to help with processing uh, any uh, evidence we found or detainees we uh, apprehended. Uh, We also were, at this point in uh, 2010, 2011 time frame, uh, the big push was to start doing partnered operations with the Afghan National Army, or the ANA. Uh, We had around 27 personnel attached to our company going in as well, uh, and and with that we had three interpreters. So that's kind of the task organization uh, that we were operating with. Um, Inside of the company, uh, we had my, my platoon Um, We had our uh, other platoon that was uh, at our two-platoon cop, normally. Uh, Second platoon was my platoon, and third platoon was the other platoon that was with us. Our first platoon had been detached to our headquarters company, and they'd stood up another maneuver company with HHC uh, to own more battle space. Um, So the two organic companies, or two organic platoons inside of the company were second platoon and third platoon. Uh, I was uh, again the platoon leader. Second platoon, third platoon was led by, uh, at the time, uh, first lieutenant uh, Jacob Sass. Uh, side note: He's now my brother-in-law, so that's kind of a cool, <laughs> kind of a cool thing that happened out of this whole deployment was uh, getting to have somebody that I was brothers-in-arms with to be a brother-in-law with now, and uh, our company commander at the time, uh, Captain Ty Reedy, and. Uh, the, we had an, a, an attached platoon to us as well, which was responsible for securing the LZ that we inserted on led by Andy Reinhardt, And uh, all three of us were 09 uh, graduates from West Point, And I thought that was kind of a neat thing in hindsight, looking back on this whole mission, seeing where we'd all come from to where we ended up. Um, so that's, that's basically the task organization. We had three platoons uh, plus attachments maneuvering into this, uh, this area of Sorrow Bay, Calais. And our mission on ground was to clear Saro Bay, Calais, and basically disrupt the enemy network of uh, QZR in that area in order to buy time and space for the unit that was coming in to replace us. So they had some breathing room and could establish their um, battle rhythm in that area. And so we were leaving that area uh, with a less established enemy network when when those guys arrived. And so, uh, we were in our 11th month of the deployment at this point, or nearing the 11th month of our deployment. Um, We were about six weeks out uh, from coming, starting to send people home uh, on main bodies. We'd already started sending ADVON personnel home uh, from different units across the battalion. And so, this this was a very last minute, uh, big mission uh, that we were getting ready to do, so that was uh, something to take into account as far as mindset of troops uh, getting ready to leave, go home. You're kind of starting to see, definitely seeing the barn door, seeing, seeing home very near in your future. And uh, me personally up to this point had been through seven firefights. And so I had an experience with kind of getting stress inoculated a little bit and understanding kind of how to compose myself uh, you know, in a stressful scenario uh, at this point as a platoon leader. And so I felt prepared. I think the guys felt prepared. Even though we knew we were getting ready to come home, uh, we were very much focused on the mission. Very much wanted to get this mission knocked out and get home to see our families. Uh, so we we ended up inserting into uh, Sorrow Bay uh, during a period of darkness. Yes, for,
1: for you yeah. to kind of talk yeah. the talk the kind of larger operational structure. So there's a couple different towns or villages that we're gonna land in. We're yeah, gonna put okay. a couple of different platoons in places. Kind of describe to me what the, the operational picture looks sure. like in, yeah, in total?
0: Yeah, so the uh, Sorrow Bay would have been a town to the south of a ridge line. And on the other side of that ridge line, a large ridge line, there was another town that our uh, headquarters company was going to, going to go in and do the same type of operation, uh, just north of where we were clearing Sorrow Bay. And, um, our objective name for this this mission was Objective Lexington. Their objective name was Objective Concord, and uh, similar mission, same same type of uh, platoon structures, you know, attachments, similar similar assets going in to help them be deliberate in their clearance of these buildings, basically looking for high value targets and taking as much uh, enemy uh, cache equipment out out of the out of the playing field, out of the fight as possible uh, during this mission. Uh, again, like you said, QZR uh, had ran that entire AO uh, for years, uh, st- a very established uh, insurgent network in that area. It was a basically a, a pipeline coming in and out of Pakistan for where men, weapons, and equipment could find their way into Afghanistan to disrupt um, US forces, but ultimately they were trying to target, starting to target Afghan National Army and uh, national police forces to disrupt and discredit the Afghan uh, government at that point and so uh, basically that whole area that that whole river valley uh, or that to the east of the Kunar River Valley there was just um, a staging area for the uh, men weapons and equipment to move their way into Pakistan or from Pakistan into Afghanistan and so uh, yeah, that, that was the lay down we had our uh, headquarters company to north. On the ridge line itself, we had our battalion headquarters mm-hmm. uh, as well as an 81-millimeter mortar. And, uh, headqu- again, headquarters element, S3, commander, um, and then our, our company to the south. So basically two companies plus and then headquarters element on the very high ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also had our, I forgot about that, we had our scout platoon uh, led by Steve Tangent uh, to the East of us in a blocking position to prevent any reinforcement along the, the high ground coming down onto either side, either objective from the top of that ridge line. Gotcha.
1: So. so your company going to clear objective Lexington. Mm-hmm. The plan is we're going to infill by helicopters we or establish some kind of overwatch or base of fire. And then your platoon is going to go into onto the objective yep. into Sorrow Bay correct, and then clear through. The entirety of the village,
0: yeah, and so yeah, to, to kind of lay the, the lay of the ground for uh, our objective was uh, Sauro Bay Calais was along a ridgeline around the same elevation of where we were going to insert, and then that ridgeline led into higher ground that surrounded us on three sides. The idea initially was insert, use uh, kind of doctrinal urban operations. Um, uh, task and purpose for different units on the ground. So Jake's platoon, uh, third platoon, was going to move to the adjacent ridgeline to our objective and establish isolation with an overwatch position and uh, obviously machine guns as well if we need be uh, to the east of the objective and prevent any sort of movement or at least report where things were moving around the objective area to my platoon as we moved through and cleared. And then, uh, Andy Reinhardt's platoon on the LZ was state was stationary and going to maintain that, uh, position with a 50 caliber machine mm-hmm. gun and our 60 millimeter company mortar as well. And the intention there being that you're going to fill out of the same, right. HLZ and that, that yeah, that have. was, that was to op- keep lines, basically lines of communication open to fill out of there if we needed to. And, uh, also, we didn't want to have anybody maneuver up from any other areas up on that ridge line and be at the same elevation maneuvering against us if, if that would happen. so.
1: So, it was your assessment of enemy threat sort of what risk um, did you did you identify as part of your mission analysis?
0: Right, and so you know, at that time, as a as a platoon leader, I think I was a little like many platoon leaders, kind of narrowly focused and didn't think as operationally. I was thinking more of the tactical level, and uh, so I wasn't thinking about some of these bigger bigger things going on around me, I didn't think about some of the other units going on or what they were gonna be doing in their their areas or because we were outside of our AO that we were normally operating in. We knew our AO very well because we were operating in a different AO. Didn't quite have a firm grasp on exactly, at my level, what was going on. Uh, I remember in the battalion brief when we were getting ready to execute, you know, they say, hey, this is gonna be a big mission we're gonna have a lot of enemy fighters this is a very well-established network um, and then you know in there in that brief just remembering thinking well this is the, probably the biggest mission that we've done this deployment and uh, so we need to be you know queued up ready to go for this one for sure and uh, yeah so we, we knew uh, that it was going to be a hard fight going in. but I didn't really, I guess, understand exactly numbers-wise or I hadn't quite really visualized, like, through my red hat, I guess, of what that was going to mean on ground uh, 100%. And uh, I know there were some things I learned the hard way um, in hindsight uh, that I wish I would have done better uh, in, in hindsight to this whole, this whole mission uh, with regards to intelligence preparation of the battlefield and being able to do you know war gaming at the tactical level Mm -hmm. if I if I do this the enemy is going to do this and then they do that what am I going to do and you know trying to Think through that in a planning aspect for sure sure.
1: Yeah, so you've done your prep You have a good feel for for what you're supposed to be doing talk to me about execution it's you know D-Day and we're Mm-hmm. taking taken off, yeah. and, and landing at our various HLZs. So, what's what's that experience like, and and what kind of played out in sure. the opening stages of the mission?
0: So, I think I uh, did a total of four air insertion, big air insertion missions. We weren't These weren't air assaults. We didn't have preparatory fires. We didn't have. We did have attack aviation, obviously, on station to help make uh, cherry ice calls. Either LZ was hot or LZ was cold, meaning we had pres- enemy presence or we didn't on the LZs, and it was safe to land. Um, so we did, we did have attack aviation with us. We uh, didn't, We did, we did no, obviously no preparatory fires with the ROE uh, in Afghanistan at that time. Uh, so we weren't really doing a full blown air assault, trying to land an entire uh, platoon of helicopters at the same time and mass combat power. Uh, it was more one or two birds at a time or one Chinook at a time. You, you, so the maximum m- number of people you're putting on ground at a time is 30. Uh, so we were basically doing air insertions at different LZs for uh, to saturate the battlefield as quickly as possible at each of the objective areas. Uh, again, we had the Company to the North battalion headquarters on the ridge line separating the two objectives and then our objective and so um, there was multiple turns we saturated the battlefield as quickly as possible with our with our troops uh, built to minimum strength and then once we had personnel on ground, obviously we were orienting ourselves the whole time, but once we Got task force reestablished on ground. Um, we began to execute our plan of maneuver, which mm-hmm. was Jake's platoon again moving to the east and high ground above the objective. My platoon waiting for him to get in position, uh, and then Andy securing the HLZ with the, their guys and our mortar section leader um, mm-hmm. getting the mortar set up and ready to rock and roll. And uh, in that time frame, in that period of darkness, I, I forget the exact time we touched down, but. Uh, some it was somewhere around two to three in the morning um, We started getting uh, reports from the attack weapons team that there was uh, enemy personnel moving around. I remember this being a very confusing uh, period here where there was you know a commander was passing information it was coming from the FSO coming to the commander we were getting Intel updates on ground uh, you know but the, the the speed at which we were trying to Establish isolation of the objective was kind of the priority at this mm-hmm. point, and so there was there was some there was some disconnect a little bit between the attack aviation guys and what they were saying and uh, us on the ground, and that that in that process somewhere in there there was a breakdown, and uh, Jake's platoon ended up running into uh, some ec- guys from uh, the village that were exfilling the village. And basically they were trying to do the same thing. They were trying to move out of the village and move to high ground adjacent to um, the village of Sorrow Bay. When Jake's platoon ran into those guys at night and basically ran into a near ambush uh, because they're obviously not wearing body armor. They were able to climb up in the trees with their AKs. And so Jake's lead platoon, Uh, suffered several casualties, uh, you know, in period of darkness, very close proximity to where they were at from a higher position because they were up in the trees and stuff. Um, I don't believe we were, I don't believe Jake's guys were able to get, uh, you know, kill any of their guys in that initial engagement. I think it was just more of a, you know, react to near ambush scenario. You return fire and uh, attack into it. And, you know, that's easy to say in training. It's mm-hmm. much harder to actually do that in real life. And uh, so I thought they, they did an excellent job of trying to maintain what they had, secure, secure casualties where they were at. I think they took initially four casualties uh, at that initial engagement. Um, and then, uh, so obviously the mission changed at that point. We went into helping secure Jake uh, down the hill uh, provide security for your splatoon while they evac their casualties. The PJs came out station. Uh, at this point, we're you know we're bleeding into the hours of daylight mm-hmm. now. Uh, you know time time starts passing pretty quickly. Uh, once contacts made and casualties are taken, then time starts to tick by pretty quick. So we went from period of darkness into period of daylight, and. Um, PJs were amazing. They got on target or got on station, got right down in there. We were in a very tight spot. We were in a kind of a ravine where they were able to get in and uh, get Jake's uh, wounded and KIAs out uh, from where he was at. And, um, you know, we, had, we hadn't heard uh, that any of the guys had passed at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of uh, damage done, obviously, uh, at that point. And uh, so we got them evac'd, got them out of there. We changed the plan. I realized that was probably not the best course of action given the terrain, given the, our uncertainty of with where all these squirters had just left the village, uh, that we were no longer going to try to push Jake's platoon, especially now that he'd taken four casualties mm-hmm. um, across the valley, away from the company, away from the two platoons that were still there on the ridge line. So we changed mission. We consolidated the two clearance platoons, which is myself and Jake at this point, so second and third platoon. Andy's still maintaining his position as the, uh, uh, retaining the high ground at the HLZ Mm -hmm. with his platoon plus uh, 50 plus uh, uh, 60 millimeter mortar. And so now Jake and I begin a series of overwatch bounds basically along the ridge line as we push through uh, the the houses along uh, Sorrow Bay Calais. So uh, and you
1: said before when we were chatting before we hit record that yeah. the, the clearance distance was, you know, relatively speaking not that big. But right, yeah, it's probably yeah. about you know, fifteen hundred meters or so. Yeah, so it's the, not the, insignificant either.
0: Right, yeah. It was probably about a mile linear distance from where we inserted to the end of where we needed to finish clearing for the day. However, those houses were um, probably 500 meters elevation difference from the top of the ridge all the way down to where the lowest house was. Mm-hmm. And all of this is you know very established old Afghan uh, terrain. so they, they've terraced the side of these mountains so they could farm it uh, for you know hundreds of years probably. And so it's you know, a lot of climbing giant staircase type things, trying to maneuver an entire platoon up and down the side of these, these hills to clear this stuff. And so we, at uh, that point, you know, we reconsolidated, got everybody moving. Uh, obviously, everybody's shook, shooken up at this point, um, especially Jake's guys. I mean, 3rd platoon, love those guys. We were very tight at this point, in the platoon, like the 2 platoons, being on a 2-platoon cop, uh, there, I don't think there's another way that you can establish bonds like you do in that kind of scenario where you have a little larger, well, it's probably a little larger than a football field. It's probably like a couple of football fields mm-hmm. attached together, but you're stuck on this island for an entire year together. And so you get to know each other very, very well, uh, build a lot of really tight friendships that way. Uh, and then obviously you've gone through a bunch of firefights together, pulled each other out of tight spots, or gone in and replaced each other on missions and stuff. So, um, you know, we, we all felt... Felt the sting of that initial contact that Jake's guys went through uh, But I definitely I know the third platoon guys were really hurting after mm-hmm. that but I thought Jake and those guys did a really great job of you know, Putting the head down continuing mission and staying focused on what we came there to do Which was just incredible in my opinion of how, how those guys did what they did on, on this mission um, So We're clearing uh, Jake's platoon kind of goes to the lower ground portion off the ridge line I stay up on the high ground because uh, I still have uh, an entire organic fresh platoon uh, we decide to keep my platoon up on top I'm gonna use my larger manpower numbers to help kind of offset and create a uh, like a buffering element so my first squad squad leader uh, Steph, Sergeant Ray he is uh, at the time, he's he's my more experienced NCO, uh, maneuver squad NCO. So I I have him move his squad in kind of like an overwatch position. That's more more or less to help keep us spread out, so we don't get so bunched up mm-hmm. on the ridge line. Uh, so if we do take fire, we're not all pinned down in one one little spot. Uh, and so he continues to bound forward of the platoon, kind of as an advanced element to help uh, keep observation forward for the rest of the company and uh then allows the rest of my platoon to continue to bound through and clear on the high ground and then jake's guys are doing the same thing we're just working our way through the through the town uh, we start to find a few things uh we, then we start getting radio reports from the other objective on the northern side of the ridge line where hhc is clearing that they're finding a lot of stuff mm-hmm. we're, we're not finding nearly as many um you know, material, we're not, we're not finding mer- nearly as many caches of uh, munitions or ammo or anything, but the HHC guys are finding a lot of stuff. And so, um, this point in the clearance, we're probably halfway through, uh, no, no other shooting has taken place at this point. We're continuing to push through clear systematically, um, trying to stay on his line as much as possible with second and third platoon, just kind of continuously to bound forward through the objective areas and clear through the houses, um, and we get to a house and there's a elderly woman there. I don't, obviously don't remember her name, but she offers to let us stay at her house um, for the for the night. And at this point in the day, it's past noon for sure. We're probably in the early evening time frame. We're getting mm-hmm. close to a period where we need to start thinking about while well, we have daylight, maybe consolidating, thinking about where we're actually going to bed down for the night, where we're going to occupy for a strong point defense. Sure. You know, we just took contact. All those guys are still out there somewhere. Uh, they're not doing anything. We're not picking up any radio chatter at this point. Um, and so we know, we know there's somebody out there in the hills still some, somewhere around us. Um, but we're, we're focused on the clearance. Uh, we, so we tell her no thank you. We continue moving through uh, that clearance of that, uh, that village. Uh, We've reached our LOA building, which is the far northern house in this Calais mm-hmm. uh, for the day that we want to clear. And there's some outlying buildings further up into the valley. Uh, they're kind of off on their own. Uh, we're not worried about those. We want to get to this last main group of houses, and we want to clear those, and that's going to be our LOA for the day. And uh, so we're getting close to that, that house, and the weather starts to turn a tad. Uh, the clouds thicken up, and the cloud ceiling starts to drop. And uh, so the problem with that is when visibility goes away, uh, rotary wing uh, assets have to push off station and they can't support you. Uh, this whole time up to this point, I guess I failed to mention this, we did have uh, pretty thick uh, overhead assets mm-hmm. helping support us, which was obviously keeping a lot of uh, contact from, ha- from happening, because they know as soon as they open up fire, we're gonna be able to talk the birds on target And then that's kind of a pointless use of their manpower if they're gonna initiate contact at this point. So at this point, the weather turns on us. And uh, for some reason, I've never never had this happen uh, because of weather uh, situations going on, but I talked to a commo guy later, but we also lost radio contact Mm -hmm. as well, outside of our company. And we uh, couldn't, we could not, we couldn't even reach the battalion headquarters element, which was another, you know, three quarters of a mile up the hill on top of the ridge line above us. Um, and the only reason I can think that that would have happened was some electronic uh, or electrical turbulence going on in those clouds mm-hmm. as well that was messing with the FM spectrum. Yeah. And uh, because of that, we couldn't, we could not communicate uh, outside of the uh, outside of the company to the battalion headquarters, which is a problem because that's our link to higher assets and getting mm-hmm you know, indirect fires or rotary wing assets pushed to our location. Sure. And so um, so there, there's one friction point that uh, was just th- it, the fog of war kind of came in on that one for sure. And I st- still don't know, like, the, the combo magic that happened right there to prevent that those radios from working that day. Uh, but we, we'd lost comms with hire at that point. And so simultaneously to us losing comms, you know, our commander, Ty Reedy uh, said, hey, we need to get TACSAT up, and uh, my RTO had a tax hat, uh mobile TACSAT antenna. So we moved to the rooftop of that last building to establish comms. And we're kind of in that consolidation phase of the mm-hmm. operation at this point. We've hit the LOA. It's not like clearing through an objective like you would in training. It's kind of, you know, hey, establish security. Let's get comms up. Let's get everybody consolidated let's lick our wounds a little bit after this whole day's events happened, reset ourselves a little bit. Now that the mission's done, you know. So it was in that weird transition from actions on to consolidation reorganization phase that all this stuff kinda started happening. My platoon's on top of the ridge, Jake's platoon is still kinda down on the side of the terraces on the hill, Mm -hmm. uh, clearing, finishing clearing his last few buildings. And uh, I think around this time two they'd gotten word back that a couple of Jake's guys had actually passed Mm -hmm. and so that news is all hitting third platoon around the same time as well Uh, so third platoon is really just kind of getting it handed to them at this point there's a lot of things to just not going well for third platoon Uh, but they're, they're continuing to push forward they're continuing to put one foot in front of the other and continue to try to finish up the mission for the day to get to this limit of advance and um Around that same, and so all these things are kind of happening all at once. Mm -hmm. And then we finally hear a radio transmission come over from the uh, handheld radios that the Insurgent Network guys were using that uh, attacked the Americans uh, throughout the AO Attack them now was generally the the transmission that was coming across the radio at this point. And so that was a broadcast that went out through both valleys. Mm -hmm. So both objectives pretty much simultaneously started receiving uh, machine gun fire from high ground positions. Uh, Objective Concord with HHC was in a similar position. They had high ground around a lot of their people as well. And so a lot of these dudes that were in the village had all exfilled to their support by fire, attack by fire positions up on high ground. Uh, around our two objectives and um, You know, it was it was a heavy amount of fire heaviest amount of fire I'd ever received Mm -hmm. uh, Direct fire small arms that I've ever received at that point coming in from three sides Uh, There was only one side back towards Andy's position on the LZ that wasn't higher than us, but they were still uh, Shooting from low ground up as well. So uh, we were at a disadvantage from three sides Uh, obviously a lot of guys talk about it. You can't see Afghan fighters too well. They do a really good job of hiding themselves. They don't use tracers. Uh, so there is no telltale sign other than uh, snaps and cracks going past you to kind of auditorily tell you where rounds are coming from. And so that's, that's when you start kind of start queuing in on where, where is the most likely position these guys are shooting from. Um, at the time, so simultaneously to me and my RTO trying to set up this TacSat radio on the roof which obviously a roof there is a flat roof. There's no cover. Um, right before all this kicks off, I, I turn my RTO and I say, Hey, we, we probably need to push off the middle of this roof over this, at least get out of the open over here. And I, like, no, no kidding. As soon as we got to the side of the roof where there was a little bit of cover, uh, that's when everything kind of kicked off. Mm-hmm. And so now me and my RTO are kind of cut off from the rest of the platoon, cut off from the CO, cut off from Jake and his guys down the hill. We're pinned down on top of this roof. Um, and so this is, one of those, this is one of those moments where you know you're not going to do any good sitting on top of the roof pinned down from everybody else. You need to get in there and command and control the situation. And so uh, silly or not, I knew I needed to get going on doing something here to get us off this roof. I tried to coordinate with the guys down inside the building because mm-hmm. it, was, it was one of those situations where everybody, you know, it was coming down, everybody thought this was the day you know, this is the day when somebody's gonna get killed. Like you could, you could feel that in the air immediately because it was one of those types of engagements. And um, so I knew it was important to coordinate with our guys inside of the building so we didn't have somebody shoot us, trying to run through the door and come back in the building in a hurry. So I ran across the roof. I told them, hey, we're getting ready to come in. Don't shoot us. I ran back to RTO, um, said, hey, I'm gonna cover you. You run, get inside the building. So I ran. And this is where I you know, I probably could have done a better job of going back to some training stuff. But I ran in the middle of the roof, started firing, but I remember I, I did not remember uh, my first couple rounds in my magazine were tracers so for marking targets. And so when I started shooting, uh, there was obviously a lot more fire directed in my direction at that point because I'd just given my position away with mm-hmm. tracers. And I almost immediately remember uh, NCOs or other people telling me in the past, like, make sure, you know, Tracers work both ways. And I just remember thinking that at that moment, uh, as everything was kind of concentrating my direction and uh, immediately regretted that decision. But it worked, pulled the fire off of my RTO, Sideman RTO was able to get off the roof, get inside the building. I was right behind him, got off the roof, uh, jumped down, uh, got with the rest of the platoon and everybody else that was piling in the building at this point, uh, trying to find cover. So and just this, get a situational awareness of what was going on. So at this point, as
1: you're trying to, to gather the situation, yep, right. There's the initial sort of reactive contact. Right, just yeah. return yeah. fire. Return
0: fire. Try to right. get to cover.
1: As as you start to develop the situation, what was what was sort of the assessment, and then what what did you guys think you were going to try and do? Were we going to try and yeah. maneuver, or were well, we so kind of yeah, that place?
0: was it. Was so it was, the fire was so heavy, and it was from high ground, so there was not a lot of options. And we didn't have radio comms with higher assets. So our only indirect fire asset at this point was our 60 millimeter mortar back on the HLZ. I think we came to that mission with about 150 rounds Mm -hmm. and we spent all 150 within 10 minutes. And so um, this this period where the radios didn't work and the cloud ceiling was down, I can't remember exactly how long that was, Mm -hmm. but basically we were an isolated company at that point with only organic weapon systems to fight with. And so, the biggest thing was, uh, and again, a lesson I learned, or relearned, been taught, but had to relearn it on this mission was, you know, set conditions, mm-hmm. like set your conditions before trying to do something. And so, uh, in this in this process of making initial contact, one of the machine gunners, again in third platoon, gets hit. And that's uh, Jeremy Faulkner is the machine gunner in third platoon that gets hit. The radio report comes back that he has a sucking chest wound. So in my mind, there's still a chance that we can go get Jeremy and we can get him back inside. and We can patch him up and mm-hmm. give him a chance of living. And so I know I'm in a better spot than Jake's in at this point. I've got a little more wherewithal about me. Jake had just come in the building a little. Well, and so the, the house that I talked about earlier comes into play at this point. We're all trying to get inside we're hearing this report of jeremy being hit down the hill and all of a sudden the house that that lady tried to get us to stay in blows up and i and at that point i was like wow we are really in it like this this whole this whole scenario was set for us before we got here and uh, i think at that point that's when i felt the real like seriousness of the situation kind of hit in of we are this is not good. And you know, that, that, that very real human feel of like, this is the day that we're probably, I'm going to probably die. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that definitely went through my mind that day. And, um, so, and I, you know, it's kind of corny to say it, but I think there was something in the band of brothers movie when he's like, Hey, as soon as you accept the fact you're dead, you just begin to like operate. Mm-hmm. And I remember that happening. I remember feeling like, okay, like that's the fate then so be it let's go get the mission done and keep moving forward until you either can't or it's done. And so, um, at that point, you know, the report about Jeremy is kind of getting flushed out between third platoon platoon sergeant and first sergeant. Um, and I just, I say, Hey, we're going, Wait, who, who's coming with me. And at that point, uh, uh Nate Allen and uh, John Nessie. So Nate Allen is one of Jake's plato- uh, team leaders mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, John Nessie is one of my team leaders. And so, and that's re- that's really all the the leadership I had around me at that point. I think the squad leaders were trying to figure out with their their squads, like trying to find shooting ports in the building we were in to return fire. Right, and yeah, people are kind of scattered. Yeah, like everybody is shooting. Everybody is every which yep. way. And uh, you know, I, I kind of went one step ahead of where I should have been at this point, and I, I feel I feel a little bit responsible for what happens after this. But um, we we try to go out and go get. Jeremy mm-hmm. and uh, right outside of the building. I remember as soon as we came around the corner You know, I was in front and then the two team leaders behind me We jump over a rock wall and jump down into a, a little like corral basically where they would have kept goats or something I remember there being uh, just a hellacious amount of gunfire flying past us Like i to feel the, the air moving around me hearing the snaps and cracks and everything Uh, So immediately you're like, okay, find cover, get in cover. It's stupid, like getting cover. Uh, So we start low crawling behind a wall, but there's a gap in the wall with a bunch of sticks and logs and stuff. Um, I don't think anything of it as I try. I cross that gap because I I don't think they can see us. Mm -hmm. And you know, cover versus concealment. Um, But so I, you know, heat of the moment, just moving, trying to keep moving, trying to keep moving, trying to find a place where we can actually get down this this terrace. Uh, series of terraces down to where jeremy's at and we don't know where he's at right Mm -hmm. now we're just trying to locate those guys visually and then move to their position and um, basically i crawl through that gap and then nate allen's right behind me and nate allen gets hit in the side uh gets gets hit by a pkm round as we're we're crawling through there and uh i just remember hearing it and it was like a hammer hitting a freaking stake or something Mm -hmm. uh, when nate got hit and i was like god dang it so which, again, change of mission, uh, Nate's hit, so now it's get Nate back to Doc so we can patch him up and uh, try to save his life. He's You know, he's vitally wounded. And uh, long story short, where we jumped down into, Nate didn't have – I mean, it was very painful, the, the bullet ricocheted. Later we found out bullet ricocheted down into his liver. So Nate was in a ton of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, handled it like a champ, though. Uh, I, was, I was really impressed with Nate and how he – Uh, handled that pain and uh, everything and then John Nessie he was there uh, immediately started applying first aid so like well we got to get back in this damn building so uh, at that point I had no option but to start just ripping this rock wall apart that we just crawled over so we could have a gap to go back through to Mm -hmm. get into the building to get uh, Nate back in there. and and expose ourselves as little as possible that's the only thing I could think of at the time was we have to create a way to get back into the building Mm -hmm. without getting shot again trying to get back into this building so create a breach a hole basically uh, with my hands and body and just figured out how to make a hole and we got Nate back up Nate again you know like a champ got back up on his feet helped get him back inside to dock uh, got him situated, and at this point, the the squad leaders in the two platoons had started to formulate. You know, getting some firepower outside the building, yeah. because the building only had one good shooting port to shoot out of, which the machine gunners were taking turns popping up and the emptying belts of ammo out the window, and then popping back up to shoot out of. Uh, but it just wasn't effective. We couldn't build a base of fire that was effective, and so at this point, uh, I forget which squad leader it was. Um, but I think it was all of them, really. They started piling out of the, the building with uh, machine guns, 203s, everything. Got on the rock wall, started returning fire. And around this time, I think we started being able to start get some 105s or 155 mm-hmm. rounds on target on the ridgeline across the way. Um, but, we, you know, we were in that we were in that, uh, gun-to-gun fight for a little while in low ground. Um, and, and I couldn't tell you how long we were in it for or anything, um, but it was just – kind of amazing to me how I guess the two things I learned there obviously set conditions before you go and start to maneuver in direct fire contact um, a new better been trained on it It's uh, just one of those kind of you know quarter armchair quarterback just things you could you could sharpshoot yourself on later uh, making sure that conditions are set before you inflict more casualties on yourself sure. while you're trying to maneuver and uh, even if you care about the guy that's down there you can get more guys torn up needlessly in the process that, you know, that's was something I beat myself up about for a while. I'm just happy Nate, you know, was, was able to make it out of there. And Nate's fine. They Nate married and has kids now and mm-hmm. stuff. So, um, but the, uh, yeah, so that, that, that day ended, um, Faulkner unfortunately passed. Um, we got uh, fire superiority eventually once radio communications came back, we, just started dropping all sorts of indirect fire brought helicopters back on station started uh, eliminating targets and then uh, that in that period of darkness that night everybody so we learned earlier in the deployment that you need to bring your own cover with you so everybody had 10 sandbags on Mm -hmm. their kit and so that night we spent all night building a fortress out of that that building and we built machine gun ports all over the place and basically turned that thing into a machine gun nest uh, pointed in all directions so that we could hold a really good strong point defense from that position and I think there was a combination of wanting to give it back to them the next day and you know do right by the guys we lost that first day mm-hmm. and just kind of some of the battle-hardened stuff that the guys had gone through up to that point in the deployment where yeah guys felt it and guys felt the loss of the dudes they lost the first day uh, but it was almost like they were more determined to stick it out after that point, to you know, if we're, if we're going to be out here, then damn it, we're going to do everything we can while we're here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I couldn't have been more proud to be part of that unit at that time with those guys because they were such a uh, just a selfless bunch of guys that were were in that platoon and that company. So, mm-hmm.
1: so as you know, night falls and you guys go about prepping yourself. How much longer were you out there? Kind of what was the exfil plan at that point, since yeah, both of so, I assume, had been cleared. Now that
0: contact had been gained, um, you know, obviously at the time, I don't think I had as good a grasp about this as a platoon leader, but I understand the value of now, once you've gained contact with the enemy, you need to maintain contact with mm-hmm. the enemy. Because if you can maintain pressure on the enemy at this point, you can continue to attrit him, destroy him, disrupt his capabilities, which was our mission when we got there. Right. Um, sometimes I think down at the platoon level, for sure, it's real easy to get cynical about getting stuck on mission and the mission keeps dragging and dragging and dragging. Um, that, that kind of happened, uh, because we were, you know, Hey, it's going to be a 36 hour mission. We're going to be there, hit this thing, come out. Uh, that ended up being a nine day operation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, our platoon, I think. Pretty certain. We're the only second platoon. Well, we, we were also very lucky and, and that's just all it is I don't know if it was divine intervention or what but we were very lucky that we Didn't suffer a single casualty on that operation for nine days out there. We didn't nobody got hit mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know what the reasoning was for that. But we were very lucky that that never happened to us uh, Obviously we, uh, third platoon had taken a fair amount of casualties at this point and so they were, they were pulled out around day five or six, I mm-hmm. believe. So they were actually out there. And you know that's where I have a ton of respect for all those third platoon guys and what they went through that day because they they got punched in the mouth, they got right back up and they kept going. And uh, you know, it was just a real testament to like intestinal fortitude, yeah. in, in my opinion. And uh, so, yeah, we, we stayed for nine days and we ended up being, uh, I don't know if we were the division you know, priority at that point, uh, but then they dumped all sorts of resources and assets. Uh, special forces showed up, Ranger batt showed up, and now we're now we're really starting to tear through places and try to really find QZR because at, at that point it's like find QZR, yeah. like secure high ground, deny key terrain, so we can continue to have freedom of movement for our you know, obviously at this point, the special operations guys are gonna take over and they're gonna do what they do. So you, you need support, op- support elements on ground to allow them freedom of maneuver on ground. So uh, my platoon, uh, we ended up moving back to our original HLZ at the end of day three, reinserted to another HLZ uh, to the Southwest, mm-hmm. cleared another village, no contact taken, stayed in place there for another day or two, Then we had to move on foot down and through another valley back up to our original well to a different ridge line between the two hlz's Mm -hmm. to secure high ground and provide observations so task force could come in and clear some some villages um you know because at that point they're leveraging their assets to do targeted hits and um basically the high, high ground position we were at um we still had to move on foot back to our original HLZ. So I don't know what the, uh, I didn't run a, a GPS to track our total foot movement. Uh, but it was the only, I remember this thinking this on day eight, uh, right. The day before we got out of there, uh, it's like, man, this is the only thing I've ever done. that's harder than ranger school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you know, I think you get into like day 10 of your uh, FTX in Florida phase and you're just so beat down. But that this this mission here definitely, you know, with all the different real world things taken out of it, but just physically exhausting, uh, by day nine on this operation, you know, everybody's carrying around 70 pounds a gear, mm-hmm. plus plus your kit. I mean, everybody's probably hauling around 100 pounds of stuff. And uh, we did that for nine darn days up there in the hills, hiking around and... Um, yeah. It's just one of those things where uh, I've always seen guys that came before me over there operating in Afghanistan. It's like, how do they do it? Mm-hmm. And it's just, you put one foot in front of the other and you train really damn hard and you get ready for it. Yeah. Yep. All right. That seems like as good a spot as I need to, to yeah. close it up.
1: So I appreciate you coming to talk to us. I think for it's sure. a fascinating yeah, hopefully, mission and uh, story. So.
0: Hopefully this gives, you know, listeners that are beginning their careers out uh, a perspective on, you know, a couple, couple things. One, Intelligence preparation of the battlefield is critical at the tactical level. Like when you're when you're thinking about the battlefield, you have to think about what you're doing, what's that going to cause the enemy to do, what are you going to do in response to that. That that needs to be part of your mission planning, and then setting conditions. Those are, I think those are the two big things uh, that I learned out of this this operation uh, that I've tried to reinforce with every element that I've worked with since then to try to teach them uh, just from lessons learned. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. You bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.